um, I just want to, uh, I want to tell you some of the things I learned this summer. I first of all can't believe summer's over and school's starting next week. It's hard to believe. But I learned four things this summer. First of all, I learned, did you know that not all people that go to the beach actually swim? Pretty obvious. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm teaching you some amazing things. Second thing I learned, everybody goes to amusement park, does not ride the roller coasters. Did you know that? There's a lot of people that actually first service, uh, Ken Leesman said, I'm not one. And the reason he eats too many elephant ears and he doesn't want to go on the roller coasters after eating those greasy elephant ears. Another thing I learned actually is beginning of this football season is everybody that's a fan doesn't necessarily cheer, especially if you're a Detroit Lions fan. There is more booing than cheering. Wendy, I'm telling you. The, absolutely. Wendy needs to calm Wendy down over there. Calm down. The fourth thing I've learned is this, is really, it's not just the summer, but over time, I've learned that everybody that calls himself a follower of Jesus doesn't necessarily follow. It's kind of odd that there are actually some people that call themselves followers that don't really follow. The first three seem kind of obvious. The last one should be. And so when we get into the book of Luke, we are now, we, we just finished the month of August. We did Psalms. We took some time off on Luke. Now we're going to pick back up in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, actually there is a movement, a different movement in Luke 9. Jesus is going to start sending out his disciples. They are starting to follow what they were taught. To me, the best definition of a disciple is a follower who follows. A follower who does what his leader has done before him. And so Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin this whole thing of what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it look like to be a follower who follows? This week we are going to just start at the very beginning. And I believe the very beginning begins with two questions. If you are going to be a follower who follows... In my mind, I really believe you need to internalize two questions. And by internalize, I mean really own these. Chew on them. Meditate on them. Because these two questions are crucial if you're really going to follow. The first question is this. Who is this man? Who is this man? Actually, in chapter 9, 1 through about 24, that's the question Jesus is going to ask. Actually, Luke's going to ask it three different times, and there's going to be three different answers. But from Luke chapter 1 through 8, we saw a miraculous birth. Mary was a virgin. She had a child, and the angel said, this child is going to bring joy to the world. Chapter 4, Jesus gets baptized. He comes out of the water. God says, this is my son. With him, I'm well pleased. And then the last story we, we talked about, actually, it's not the last story in chapter 8, but it's a key one in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is on the, he's on the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm. The waves come in. They think they're going to die. Jesus is woken up, and he tells the waters to hush. And the water's still, the sky breaks blue, 
And disciples are scared. But they're not scared at the storm. They're scared of the man, Jesus. And they ask, who is this? So it's a crucial question. Who is this man? So we're going to begin in verse 9, and we're going to start venturing through that question. And then there's going to be another follow-up question to the original question. Look in Luke 9, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says, He called twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out. That's what apostle means, a person who's been sent out on mission. These are the twelve disciples. And Jesus is going to give them his power, that means his ability, and authority. That means rights over creation. It's kind of a powerful thing. And they're going to be able to cast out demons and cure diseases. Actually, casting out demons and curing diseases, scholars call authenticating gifts. They're signs that prove the authenticity of who they're following. So when a follower is able to display these powerful gifts, they are authenticating that the leader they're following is the genuine article. That's why he gives them those gifts. So you have verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So their job was to go and proclaim that God's kingdom is here. So they went all through Galilee and Judea. They were sent out two by two, and there's just the 12. So really teams of six. It's speculated they went out for probably about two weeks, maybe a month, and they were telling people about Jesus while curing diseases. Verse 3, he said to them, take nothing for your journey. You're not going to need anything. You're not going to need a staff to defend yourself, no bag to carry your things, your toothpaste and toothbrush. Don't bring that stuff. No bread. You're not going to need uh, you know, dehydrated meals that you're going to need later on. Don't bring money and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there. They'll take care of you, basically, is what he's saying. It's in the Old Testament, itinerant preachers or prophets the people would take care of them. And he's saying, that's kind of what you're going to be doing. And then he says, from there depart. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So he says, stay where they like you. If they don't like you, when you leave town, take your sandals and smack them and just send the dust their way, meaning they're unclean. That's not a good thing the eyes of God. So they went, and verse 6 said they departed, they went through the villages, they were preaching the gospel, and they were healing everywhere. And so, man, they were doing great things in the name of Christ. Well, watch what happens. This question is asked by this guy named Herod. Look at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Like, what's going on? Because it was said by some, John had been raised from the dead. Oh, no. Herod's saying, oh, no. You're saying, why is he saying, oh, no? Well, if you know Herod's story, Herod, he's a king in the area of Judea. He was sleeping with his brother's wife. Not good. It's called adultery. Not a good thing. John the Baptist said, you can't be sleeping with your brother's wife. Herod didn't like it, nor did Herod's brother's wife. And so they wanted to kill 
John the Baptist. So they put John the Baptist in their prison. It said Herod would sneak down there and listen to him because he really was interesting. He had good things to say, but Herod's brother's wife didn't like it. So she got this plan. Herod is having a birthday party. He was drinking like crazy. All his buddies were there. Herod's brother's wife sent her daughter to dance before Herod. Herod was not just inebriated, but he was probably that was provoked to say, whatever you want, darling, I'll get it for you. Saying that in front of all his friends. I want the head of John the Baptist. That's what I want. Ooh, he was caught. So what he did is he had John taken into the back room, his head cut, put on a platter, served it up to Herod's brother's wife's daughter, Salome. Herod thinks he's free of this guy saying, you can't sleep with your brother's wife. Now, these guys are going around and they're saying, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. What? <laughs> no, no. He's going to come after me and he's going to be ticked because I cut off his head. This is not good. It's not good. And so if you keep reading, it says in verse 8, by some, you know, they, again, uh, some say it's Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the prophets of old. So he said, it could be John the Baptist, could be Elijah, other prophet. But Herod said, John, he thinks, I beheaded. Oh, who is this? So for, John, for Herod, who is this man? He would say, this man is a threat to me. I don't want him around. If he's even close to John the Baptist. He's a threat. You see, John, and if this is John, and if he's like John, he'll tell me to stop doing things I really like doing. He'll make me change. Ooh, I don't like him. You know, there's a lot of people that view Jesus just like that. I really don't like him because he'll make me be different so that was the first answer then we have in verse 10 the disciples now they're done let's say it's been a month later and it says in verse 10 on their return the apostles told them all they had done so they go to jesus and they debrief when derek and i would go on youth trips we'd have all the teens go out do their mission trip then at the end of the week we'd have them debrief so what did you learn what's going on so the disciples come back to debrief a little bit but the problem is the crowds followed them and they were debriefing on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, kind of up in the mountains a little bit. And so verse 11 says, When the crowds learned this, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had, no, who had need of healing. So Jesus, he's, he's a nice guy. So he, he sees the crowd. He stops his debriefing. He takes care of the crowd for a while. Verse 12 says, Now the day began to wear away, meaning it's getting, it's getting late. Sun's starting to go down a little bit. Probably six, seven o'clock at night. The twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are in a desolate place. I was able to go with Bill Rexford. Remember, Bill, when we were up there in the Mount of Multiplication? It kind of was desolate. There was some grass, a little bit of shrubs, not much else. So he, the disciple said, Jesus... It's getting late. Send them away. Send them to Capernaum, down to Bethsaida. Let them just shack up somewhere else, not up here. In the, we can't take care of them. 
Because watch, there are quite a, quite a lot of them. Verse 13, but he said to him, you give them something to eat. Meaning, all right, you're a follower. I've been taking care of you. Now you do what I used to do. They said, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. People will say, that's just counting men. What if their wives were with them? 10,000? What if kids were with them? Maybe 15,000? And they had how many? Five loaves and two fish? You guys couldn't make it on that. Man, I'd give a loaf to Andrew. He'd eat the whole thing. You guys wouldn't make it. we got to feed 15,000 people? Jesus, what are you, crazy? What's interesting, I was reading some modern writers and they were saying, well, this really isn't a miracle. What happened is Jesus actually had all this bread hidden underneath bushes. So he just kept pulling them out of the bushes. That's kind of silly. Just a little silly. Okay, so you have verse 14. Have them sit down. Put them in groups of about 50. We'll bring some organization here. And as they did so, he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to disciples to set before the crowd. So he lifts it up, gives, gives a blessing. Thank you, God. Breaks it and hands it off. This guy breaks it, hands, keeps breaking. Keep, wow, keeps breaking. Verse 17. And this, 17 is an awesome verse. And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets left over. Some people believe twelve is a number of fullness. There's twelve apostles. They fully represent the twelve tribes. And maybe this is a statement of fullness. They just had twelve, twelve baskets in my mind. That's showing Jesus satisfies abundantly. So the disciples saw amazing, amaz this is an amazing miracle. But it goes back to this question again. Look at verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? The people they went to go see, and even these people that they gave the loaves to, who am I? And they answered, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Probably heard Herod's, Herod's little scare. But others say Elijah. Elijah. Elijah was that prophet that could call fire from the sky. He's the one that could multiply oil. He did amazing things. Elijah was amazing. You want to talk about kind of like a superhero, Old Testament prophet? Elijah's the guy. He's the guy that got caught up in a chariot of fire. He's probably, you know, he went on wheels of fire. He's, some people say he's one of the only guys that never died. Some say you're one of the prophets of old who have risen. So... What this is, is most scholars will say, well, they're probably thinking he's like Moses who came back from the grave. Moses was the one that led people out in the desert and gave them manna, that bread that came out of the sky. And Jesus kind of gave manna. So it could be Elijah. It could be Moses. In other words, who do the people say I am? Well, some think he's a threat. And I think others think Jesus is this like amazing, intriguing, miracle man of mystery. Man, he's like Elijah, like Moses. The guy divided all of that food for us. There's a lot of people that see Jesus like that today. I heard, I heard, if you want something, if you pray it and believing it in Jesus' name, you'll get it. Wealth, health, happiness. 
Jesus is amazing. He'll give you a great life of abundance. He's a intriguing man of mystery. You know what he is, actually? He could be a threat to your life. He could be that. He could be this intriguing man of mystery, but I'll tell you what. If you, he doesn't keep giving you what you want, you probably won't follow him anymore. I'm talking about what do people think of Jesus who continue to follow him? Jesus asks one more time, but to the disciples. Look at verse 20. Then he said to them, talking to the apostles, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. Why don't you go to Matthew 16, 16. Actually, Matthew 16, 15 and 16. It's the same story, but it gives you a little bit more insight. Matthew 16, 15. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, do you know why, Peter, you know that? Because God revealed it to you. To me, these first two, he's a threat to my way of life, He's an intriguing man of mystery. These are things, humanly speaking, we can decipher on our own. This third one, it has to be of God. This third one, the Christ of God, you know what Christ means? He's the anointed king. He rules my life. He is, to a Jew, the answer to every prophecy. He is the embodiment of everything I've lived for. To me, he is. He is everything. That's what the Christ of God means. And it's not something you can be forced into, you can be reasoned with, you can be argued into. God has to show you. It has to be revealed to you. Internally. So the question for you is, who is he? Is he a threat? Some of you, the reason you don't follow is because you know he doesn't want you doing what you most of the time do. For some of you, he's intriguing. He really is. He's intriguing. He's, he's exciting. But what happens when he's not? It's interesting. Another similar story. John 6, maybe one of my favorite stories. Jesus starts getting a little confusing. And the crowds are following him, and he starts saying some hard things. And the crowds leave him, but the 12 are there. And he asked Peter, he goes, don't you want to go too? Don't you want to leave too? And here's Peter's answer. He gives two parts. He says, number one, where do I go? Where do I go? Who else? Who else fulfills the role of Christ? Nobody. But then he says this. I'm going to stay because only you have the words of eternal life. So that's the first question, and you have to answer that yourself. I can't force you or 
A preacher can't get you mad at you and make you believe it. You have to internalize that yourself. Is he the Christ? If he is, then you've got to answer number two. And this is where it gets hard. Go ahead. Is he worth following? Is he worth it? What do I mean by that? Well, you look starting in verse 21. He strictly charges and commands them to tell no one. And he's going to say, this is what's going to happen to me. And you know followers have to follow where the leader's already gone. Watch where the leader's going. This is where it gets dangerous. Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first time he predicted his mode of death, that he's going to die on the cross. But watch this. So the follower must follow. I must follow in the suffering. Well, read 23 and 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So when I ask the question, is he worth it? The it are two things. Is Jesus worth denying yourself for? And is Jesus worth taking up your cross for? First of all, denying yourself, in verse 24, the way Jesus says deny yourself is basically losing your life. It's the same idea. It's dying to self. One writer, um, I think this is one of the best definitions I ever heard about dying to self. It's by Dallas Willard. He says, being dead to self. Listen, this is really hard. It's really hard. It says, being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise me or offend me. And it has no control over me. The mere fact that I do not get what I want and you know what I want on a daily basis? I want to be the best. I just do. I want to be right. I want to be recognized. I want to be compensated. And I want to have fun. So this says, the mere fact that I do not have necessarily rights or recognition or compensation doesn't surprise me. Or offend me. I read this book, it's called, the, it's called The Snare of Satan. The snare of Satan is offense, being offended. This book says if you are easily offended, Satan can do anything he wants with you. He will cause you to gossip and get jealous and divide and criticize and get bitter. Offense is a terrible thing. Oh, it's killing people. But when you're dead to yourself, you're not offended. And it has no control over me. Ooh. That's hard. So is he worth that? The second thing, is he worth taking up my cross? Look what it says again in verse 23. Takes up his cross daily. What does that mean, cross-bearing? It's a big question. Cross is a symbol. Here's what happened with Jesus. So we use this cross, the, Jesus took this cross, 
and it was a sign. He was under the authority of an unjust system. And he let God deal with it, and he didn't fight back. What? Go to the book of 1 Peter. I think cross-bearing is perfectly explained in 1 Peter chapter 2. I would even go so far as to say, if you want to evaluate your heart, really kind of like test and see if you're genuine, like a real believer, I think this is the passage that does it better than any other passage. Because it's so, it's just so harsh. You'll, you'll know what I mean. So it's 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And this is what I think it means to carry a cross. For this is the will of God. Will of God means this is what God wants you to do. This is what God wants you to submit yourself to or come underneath. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should be put to silence, the ignorant of foolish people. So do good, even if people criticize you, they'll be watching you. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So you aren't living for under the expectations of others. You aren't living to please others. You're living, living to please God. You are free to do as you want for God's sake. That's freeing to me. It also makes people irritated. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That means respect your governing authorities. Now look at verse 18. Here's where it gets hard. Servants, that means servants of God. Or no, servants of, you know, these were, there was what's indentured slavery. It's kind of like people would give themselves to rich people to pay off debts. And that's what he's talking to, servants. Us would be our bosses. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know what this is saying? Imagine you're working a job, you're working your tail off, and the guy that you work with does nothing, and he gets promoted because he says, He's been doing the work you've been doing. He gets more of a paycheck. I'm out of this job. I'm leaving here. I don't get the respect. This says, deal with it. That's not fair. I know. I know. I know it's not fair. Jesus, the Son of God, was sinless, and he was spit on. Keep reading. It says, this is really to me the kickers, verse 21. For you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was reviled, that means when he was insulted, when he was offended, he didn't revile in return. This is what married couples do every time. I call you that name, you call me this name. You did that, well you did that. Or your buddies who talk about you. you revi we revile. Stop reviling. Stop returning evil for evil. If when uh, it basically says, it says here, verse 23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, here it is, he 
did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means by that. Do you remember when Jesus was suffering, he was being beat, he was, had crown of thorns put on his head, he was being whipped, and then as he's being hung up, the words he says is he says, Father, forgive them. Because really they don't know what they're doing. That's what it means. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Oh, do you know how hard this is for me? It's so hard. Have you ever gone to bed at night because you know somebody hates you or doesn't like you and you just think about it all the time and you're always arguing in your head why you're not that bad of a person and why you're right and how I'm going to get them back and it's just you won't go to bed because it's all you think about? Stop it! Trust God with it. Is he worth it? And that word he is the kicker. If we go back to Luke 9, the reason why it's a kicker is because it says in verse 24, Forever who would, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, and here it is, loses his life for my name's sake, Jesus says. You're doing it for me. You're doing it for Jesus. Is it worth it? I, you could ask it like this. Like, I would ask it like this because these two verses, these two verses don't rub me the right way. You've got to deny yourself daily, take up your cross, lose your life. That's miserable. So the question for me is, is Jesus, is following Jesus meant to be misery? Does he want me to be miserable? And as I was thinking about this, why does God want me to die? And the real answer is this, so I can really live. When I am angry, when I'm offended, when I'm trying to fight for my rights, I'm always, like, trying to win. When I die, all of a sudden, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control come over me, and I'm a new person. It's given to me by the Spirit of God when I die. It's so unbelievable. It's not natural. It's funny, I was at a funeral this week, and Jesse Kaler has given a message, and he said, Charles Spurgeon had this quote, and this is an amazing quote. Charles Spurgeon said, It doesn't take a lot of faith for a person from earth to go to heaven. Actually, the grain of a mustard seed. But it takes a lot of faith for heaven to be dwelling in a person on earth. That's the point. It's this parable. It's one of my favorite parables. Jesus said, it's like the pearl of great price. This merchant went out, he's looking for pearls to buy, and he comes across a stand, and this fisherman's got a pearl, and this, he looks at that pearl, and it's flawless, and he knows in his mind that pearl is worth everything. So he goes home as fast as he can, sells everything to buy that pearl, because what he lost is not compared to what he gains. It's everything. It's interesting, about three weeks ago, this Filipino fisherman he was cleaning out his house because he had to move to another house. And uh, as he's cleaning some of his stuff, he had one of his friends watch over. He said it was a good luck charm. He said, can you just watch over this good luck charm? And the friend said, well, what is it? And he brought him into the house. He said, I was fishing a, while, a long time ago, and I, I found this in a clam, and it was this pearl, and it weighed 75 pounds. And the guy said, that's your good luck charm? He said, did you ever get it 
you know, measured or how much it's worth? Nah, I didn't think about it. So they did. You know how much that 75-pound pearl was worth? $93 million. It's sort of like how I think sometimes we think about what Christ in me is. Oh, that's good luck charm. It's everything. It's everything. Jesus is everything. Listen to verse 25. 25 puts it in, in understanding the tangible worth. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? Jim Elliott, who is a missionary. Grindy, you like Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, you know Jim Elliott's driving phrase. Listen to Jim Elliott's driving phrase. It's amazing. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was a missionary, went to the South America. He's this like trim athlete, but he wanted to win the Aka Indians for Christ. He got killed by him. So did he lose everything? I think he's doing amazing. Crindy, how many missionaries would you say Jim Elliott inspired? Thousands. Hundreds of, I'd say hundreds of thousands. At least. I'll give you a, I'll give you another athlete who I think the, the opposite just happened to. You guys probably know Usain Bolt, fastest guy in the world. Three Olympics in a row. 100-yard fastest guy ever to run it and 200. Right after the Olympics, he was caught on Instagram or something like that with 10 other women, even though he happened to be engaged, and his fiance calls him up and said, we're done. He's so cool, isn't he? Boy, he gained the whole world, but what did he really gain? Why die to really live? So the first, the two questions, if you're going to be a follower who actually follows, who is he for you? Who is he? Really? And the second question is, is he worth it? I have one more side question for, I think, he's going to ask here at the end and it's verse 26 and verse 26 is a it's a stunner of a verse really it's a verse that it's it's probably a verse we don't think about too often but if you could really think about the reality of it it might be the one of the biggest verses that would overwhelm you the most but because we don't really consider it it's not in our daily processing it doesn't have a lot of bearing on us listen to it Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of. So you're a follower, but you don't follow. Hebrews kind of twists it. Hebrews puts it in a different way. Go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 13. I think if you want to find a set of verses that may be the most relevant for Americans at this time in our, our day and age of Christianity, which really thinks Christianity is about getting, this could be it. Because it's, to me, I, I remember the first time I read this, I just, I didn't get it. Then I started meditating on it. And then it started 
hitting me. This is really what I want. This is what I want. Verse 13. These all died in faith, meaning all these heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11 is this, they call it the hall of faith. You know, you have Abraham and Abel and Noah. Talk about Moses. These are what I'd say, you know, these are the big guns. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised. They didn't receive everything promised to them by God in this earth. But they saw them and they greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they recognized this isn't it. This isn't the final destination. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. They want more than what's offered them here, really. They want Christ. They want the heavenly one. Therefore, because they wanted more, here it is, God is not ashamed. To be called their God. My, uh, I'll just tell you, to, to me, this, this time of year is kind of exciting, especially when you have sons in sports. My one son plays soccer, my other son plays football. And honestly, one of my greatest joys is to watch them. It's just fun. My dad used to love watching me play football, but let me tell you a little bit about my, my dad. My dad was a good football player. He played for Cathedral Latin in Cleveland, Ohio. He was so good in high school that he got a full-ride scholarship, four years, paid for at University of Dayton as a football player, was in Street and Smith Magazine because he was very good running back, defensive back. And then he was asked to possibly walk on on some pro football teams, but they only paid you peanuts back then, probably those orange peanuts. So he'd, nah, I don't, I don't need to beat up my body. I got to get a real job kind of thing. So, needless to say, my dad, when he went to watch my sports, he, wasn't, he didn't have to live his life through me, if you know what I mean. There are some of those fathers who live their life through their sons, and you can tell them. They're the ones on the sidelines that are ridiculous. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, Dennis, I'm talking. You know those kind of guys. And my dad wasn't that way, you know. You know, my dad already lived his life, so he didn't need to live his life through me. So, if it was a bad call, you know... He didn't care. It's, Chris, it's Chris's game, not mine. I can remember one game we won. This is a football game. We won. We were excited. I remember going home saying, Dad, what'd you think? We won. We tore him up. It's an amazing game. My dad looked at me and goes, eh. But, Dad, we won. We won. Yeah, Chris, that's great. But you were kind of lazy. There's a lot of plays you kind of just walked over to, and you missed a couple tackles that you make every time because you just, it's all right. So, Dad, what are you saying? Chris, I'm not, I'm just telling you, okay, you won, but you didn't really play that well. All right, all right. Two weeks later, we played a really tough team. Actually, if you ever heard of Tony Mandrich, he was on that team. He's the steroid guy, played for Michigan State. See how Michigan State cheats, Derek? See that? Anyhow, I played against his team. And uh, we lost. We lost by only seven points, but we lost. And I felt so defeated. I remember going home feeling bummed out. My dad goes, that was an amazing game. I said, Dad, we lost. He goes, Chris, you had about four guys knocked out of the game, so they took you from cornerback and put you on a defensive line. And you had about three sacks. You stopped the running back almost every time. I am so proud of you. 
But dad, we lost. I don't care if you lost. You gave it everything you had. I'm so proud of you. In, a, in church, here's how we view church. I was at a Christian concert. We sang, our church sang, and I cried. Man, we can sing like crazy. God probably goes, eh. Okay, all right. But Chris, I saw you at work where you stood up for the name of my son and they mocked you for it. And they didn't really talk to you for the next three or four months. They laughed at you when you walked by. I'm proud of you. You know, I saw you with your wife. Your wife's going through some really, really, really hard times, and you keep taking her to the hospital, you keep praying with her, you keep to take care of the kids. Proud of you. Yeah, but it's not joy all the time. I'm not saying God is great all the time, you know, God is good all the time. You're not saying that. Yeah, but you're living and denying yourself and you're picking up your cross daily. I am proud of you. I think we have things. We have things by appearance rather than reality. And I think Christianity, if you want to be a follower who follows, you follow like Jesus did. 